Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. I am Leo Flowers. Today's guest is Holly Ann Mitchell. She is a speaker, a coach, a mental health advocate, and performing artist. I, all four of those, I'm excited to hear about. And, and what's beautiful is we're catching Holly Ann Mitchell in a place of transition, a place of reinvention. And for those of you out there who are transitioning, maybe you lost your job or you quit your job or you're getting a divorce or you're getting married, even if you're getting married, we're going to talk about all that, the health, the wealth, the relationships. Uh, Holly Ann Mitchell is going to bring all of her life experiences with her today. And she's going to share with you how to find and reclaim that joy in your life. How you doing, Holly Ann Mitchell? I'm doing so good. Thank you so much for having me here, Leo. I, I appreciate it. I'm excited to have you on. I want to start off in a, in a very heavy place um, because I was watching your videos, doing some background, and I was like, I need to know more about this. You have this, you gave this talk where you talk about uh, method uh, is magic. And the method, M-E-T-H-O-D, not not as in method man, but me because I almost I almost went into the flow. Uh, but it's an acronym, and when you get to the E in in the in the acronym for method, you talk about how the environment affects uh, dentists, and I'm bringing it up because you talked about how the sounds uh, can lead to depression and suicide and. So many people are just not aware of how their environment affects their mood. They, they think that yeah. they're just moody themselves. Can you talk about that, Holly Ann? Absolutely. You know, I've, I've worked in the dental industry for over a decade, coaching dentists and their teams on not just the doing of practice management, but also the being, because they go hand in hand. And what I found is that dentists have a really high prevalence of anxiety, depression, and suicidality. And there have been a lot of studies about this as well. And there, there are other professions that also have high rates of suicidal thoughts um, and suicidal uh, attempts, one of them being construction workers. And so when I looked at these two professions, dentists and construction workers, what do they have in common? And what I noticed was sound exposure. So construction workers are, are listening to those jackhammers all day, right? And, and the same thing with dentists. They're listening to these high-powered drills and sounds, you know, the ones that make our hair stand up on the back of our neck as patients. But what's happening is when they're being exposed to these sounds, their nervous system becomes dysregulated. And it puts the body into a fight or flight. So it's pumping all of these stress hormones throughout their body, creating inflammation, which is the leading cause of disease, but also over time creating chronic stress, which leads to anxiety and depression. So, and think about dentists as well, the body position in which they work, they're hunched over all day long. Now, if you or I were hunching over all day long, I think I would start to feel kind of depressed <laughs> if I was in this like hunchback position. And that's exactly what happens to dentists. And so 
I found for myself, even that sometimes just changing things in my environment can change my brain. Uh, the things that we see, hear, smell, touch, taste throughout the day can either put happy neurochemicals inside of our body or put stress hormones. Uh, one of the things I've noticed recently being in Los Angeles, I just relocated to, to Los Angeles, California, is that I feel so much happier being in the sun. <laughs> seems kind of obvious, but light has a huge impact on our mood and our ability for our nervous system to regulate. And so sometimes just experimenting with a change in what's around you, things that you see, touch, hear, taste, smell can really have an impact in how much better you feel throughout the day. I love that you use that word experiment because I often will have conversations with people about uh, what's going on in their life and the changes that uh, they may potentially need to make. And a lot of times we just take things as they are. We just accept our relationship for what it is, our, our salary, our environment. And it's like, we can move the couches around. We can paint the walls a different color. We can open the windows, bring in some plants. There's so many things that we can do to experiment. It's not about having the answer right now. It's about a willingness to explore and venture out and see what works for us and what doesn't work for us. We often let the history and our history dictate our present and our future. Can you speak more to that, Holly? I love that because, you know, you mentioned at the top of our, our talk today that I was at a moment of reinvention. And this is probably the third or maybe fourth time in my life that I've totally reinvented myself <laughs> for better or for worse. But what, what happens in the brain when we change something is dopamine. Dopamine is one of those happy hormones. It gives us a little boost. It's, it's the novelty that we experience in life, right? Variety is the spice of life and it's fuel for your brain for happy hormones. So when, when I recognized for the first time that I was struggling with my mental health um, and, and becoming aware that you're you're having a challenge with your mental health is, is the first step in being able to give yourself an opportunity to make a choice on how to, how to change your brain. Cause when you can change your brain, you can change how you think you can change the outcome of your life. And for many people, medication is, is a path that helps them change their brain and support them on a path to healing and feeling more like themselves. For me, medication wasn't an option that I wanted to explore because my body's just always been super sensitive to anything that I put in it. I, I never was able to have a drink of alcohol, like I'd be two sips and then, you know, fall over. So I didn't want to try medication, but I found out that I could start experimenting with what was in my environment, with my lifestyle, the things I ate, the things I did in my routines to help manufacture those chemicals that were inside of the pills that people were, were taking, that I could manufacture them in my own body. I could make serotonin in my gut. I could create dopamine, oxytocin. I could create endorphins. And these happy hormones would help me regulate my own nervous system so that I could feel better, feel more like me throughout the day. And that's what I started doing when I was 
29, I started going to yoga. I started trying to meditate. I started changing my diet and some things worked for me and some things didn't work for me, but I was willing to try anything to see if it made a difference. And that's kind of how I developed my own little rituals every day of the things that support me and help me without having to take medication. I love that. And when you talked about your mental health challenges, can you uh, share with us uh, what that experience was like for you? And then you said there were things that worked for you and some things that didn't work for you. Can you share with us what didn't work for you and what did start to work for you? Sure. Well, if we go back to the first time that I totally broke in my life, Um, And I think of these moments of breakdowns as really my breakthroughs. Now, looking back at them in the moment, it, it feels horrible to, to break down, but you can use those moments of, can I curse on this podcast? Are we cool with that? Uh, You can, but then that limits. uh, All right. Well, I'll, I'll just, I'll, I'll give it, I'll give you the, the PG version. So, um, if you can take a moment of crap, right? And you turn it into fertilizer, right? To to help you and others to grow. Like those are those moments of post-traumatic growth. And so in these moments, the first time in my life where this happened to me, I was 22 years old and I had just graduated from NYU's Tisch School of the Arts. I had always wanted to be an actress on Broadway. It's why I moved to New York when I was 18. And I also had this kind of really inconvenient habit called anxiety that was in my brain and took over me from time to time. And I sort of just like worked around it. And the the reason that it was incredibly inconvenient is because the way anxiety showed up for me was whenever I would get stressed out, I would pass out. I would faint. And it's called vagal vagal syncope, anxiety induced fainting, just like those old movies, right? I need my smelling salts. <laughs> that was me, right? Very inconvenient on the New York City subway to, you know, have a fight with your boyfriend and pass out in front of everyone. <laughs> so I was trying to live with this condition. And uh, uh, when I was 22, I graduated and I was about to go to the most important audition of my life, which was a showcase in front of casting directors and agents. And I woke up on that morning and I had a panic attack and I fainted and I called and told them I had food poisoning and that I wasn't able to come to the audition and I froze and I never went to another professional audition ever and took me six months to run out of money and I found myself homeless and I found myself without my identity because the only thing I ever wanted to be was an actor. And my anxiety was preventing me from pursuing my dreams. And I felt like I lost everything. I felt like I lost myself. I felt like I lost my reason for being on this planet. And it was in the middle of the night, sleeping on someone's couch in Queens, in the middle of the summer, sweating to death, couldn't sleep, that I thought about ending my life. And I, and I saw really that I had two paths. One was to just call it and leave, leave the earth. And the other was to reinvent myself and try again. And what kept me glued 
to the planet in that moment where I had lost myself, lost everything that I loved and everything I'd ever worked for was my love for my mother and my sister because I didn't want to cause them pain. I loved them more than I loved my own life. And that's why I decided that I was going to choose a different career and I was going to try to make myself over again into something else. And in that moment, I decided I was going to become a dentist (laughs) of all things. (laughs) It made perfect sense to me. I have really nice teeth and I'm good at math and science. And so I I was like, I'm going to, I'm just going to be a dentist. And so I, I threw myself into that path figured out really quickly that I wasn't going to be any good at dentistry because you kind of need hand-eye coordination to hold a high-speed drill in people's (laughs) mouths. But I did have a knack for the business side of things. And that's really how my dental entrepreneur career started and, and began when I was when I was 22 at a moment of reinvention, out of a moment of desperation, creativity saved my life. What was it that you saw in the dental industry? Because I know before we talked about depression and suicidality, is that what you saw early on that made you say, I want to coach dentists and teach them how to thrive? Or was there something else about the dentistry field that you felt like you could be of service to them and that they needed? You know, in the beginning, when I thought about being a dentist, the first thing was because I was so broke and I had so much student loan debt to pay off, uh, was how can I make money? <laughs> what, what seems like a financially viable career um, that is positive for the world? And I knew that I, I couldn't be a physician because I had I would faint in hospitals. That was one of my anxiety triggers was being in a hospital. So I was like, well, uh, I can't be a physician, but I could be a dentist. I could be a dentist. And I liked my dentist growing up, I I had a great orthodontist, Dr. Prince Pei. Um, That was really what drew me was financial stability because I, I did, I didn't have any money. And when I, when I found my way into it, I, I found that it was a really interesting career because it's so dynamic and so strange that dentists graduate from school and they know how to fix teeth, but they don't know how to operate their businesses. They're, they're required to be this marketing guru and find out how to, you know, grow their business and, and attract new patients. They're required to be head of HR. They're required to be head of operations and strategy and the CEO. And, and most dental school programs have very, very little business training. Most of it completely irrelevant and useless um, and out of date. But what, what I was able to do was to help the doctor who hired me to really understand his business and grow his business. So when I started managing his practice, we doubled in size in the first year. Um, And then I figured out, oh, I'm I'm pretty good at this business stuff. And it's a big problem in the industry that causes a lot of anxiety, stress, and depression is these dentists who have a skill, but they don't know how to be an entrepreneur. And I saw an opening and, and went for it. So you talked earlier about sound and how, you know, our environment, I had a, a, a podcast with Evan Transo and he talks about how environment pulls the trigger. And you mentioned how that the noise pollution in a dentist office or in a construction site. And, you know, I'm sure a lot of listeners live in 
very uh, noise polluting areas, urban areas where there's sirens, maybe gunshots, uh, the dogs barking next door, um, and, and just uh, even construction work on the streets, et cetera. Uh, what are some of the the uh, techniques or strategies you use to help Dennis uh, cope with the sound? When I lived in New York City uh, for 15 years, I didn't realize how much sound, right? Oh, that hyperstimulation of my nervous system was affecting me until I spent a little bit of time in nature <laughs> and recognized that I felt completely different. So just being able to pull yourself out from time to time and pressing that reset button on your nervous system is really important. But one of the tools that I found really supportive for me and often recommend to my clients is uh, something called binaural beats. Binaural beats is when is when you have your earphones in and you're listening to two tones that kind of sound like white noise or brown noise, pink noise, all these different color noises. Uh, but they're playing at two different tones in either ear. And so what happens to your brain when you're listening to these sounds is it slows your brain waves down. And this is really this is really the key to relaxation, to meditation, to even hypnosis, because uh, I have a certification in hypnosis and a fascination with the unconscious mind. What you're doing when you're accessing these slower brainwave patterns is you're re-regulating your nervous system back to a state of ease and access to your unconscious material. Your, your higher thinking happens when your brainwaves are slower. And, and some people who are musicians or they've experienced flow state, maybe when they're writing or cooking where they're just fully immersed in a task and time sort of falls away, that's when your brain is much slower. And you're, you're usually a lot more creative and you have access to the best parts of you when your brain is in the slower state. And binaural beats is a great way to meditate uh, just by listening to this noise and getting yourself quiet. So is that what we are hearing when we walk in nature? Are we getting that? Are there ways that we get that naturally without the headphones and going to our Spotify playlist of binaural beats, which I do listen to when I'm uh, studying? Yeah, when you're in nature, absolutely. Your your body is re-regulating back into that place of ease. So your brain waves are going to slow down, right? It's just because there's that lack of stimulation, especially if you took didn't take your device with you. <laughs> your your technology with you the sounds around you right they're really pulling you into the present moment even just looking at nature at plants at water it's going to increase serotonin and that's one of those happy neurochemicals that are going to make you feel more like you tell us more about serotonin you talked about dopamine serotonin endorphins can you break down what those differences are because because you're right, so many of us are trying to access dopamine through uh, food, sex, drugs, uh, TV, and you know serotonin through uh, you know there's there's different supplements and drugs out there. But what are they um, individually, and how do we access those naturally? 
So the reason that we need these happy hormones is because they're going to help us wash away the stress hormones. So life is going to naturally bring its stressors. And especially if you're a high performer or high achiever, you're often putting yourself in situations of stress because that's how you know you're growing. So we don't want to get rid of stress. Stress is, it's telling us that we're growing, that we're challenging ourselves, but we want to regulate our stress so that when we are in those moments where we're forced to perform, we have access to the best parts of who we are. So when we're washing away these stress hormones, we're helping to regulate our nervous system and helping us to stay online in our prefrontal cortex, which is if you tap on your forehead, that's the front part of your brain. That's where that's where all the goodies are. That's the executive function. That's your creative brain. That's all, that's all in the prefrontal cortex. So we, we need to be able to manage our balance of these stress hormones and wash them away with these happy hormones in your brain. So dopamine, oxytocin, serotonin, endorphins, they spell the word dose. So if you want to dose yourself, get your daily dose of these happy hormones, you're just going to feel better. And when you feel better, you think better. And when you think better, you do better. You relate better. Life is just better when you feel better. So why not dose yourself every single day? So it's the fuel that your brain needs, right? You wouldn't go a day without food and water. This is the fuel that your brain needs to be you to be the best you that you possibly can be. So, you know, I started to research what are the things that I can do to incorporate dopamine, oxytocin, serotonin, endorphins into my lifestyle so that I could stay feeling like me because I've had trauma, right, in my life and genetics. There's a lot of mental illness in my family. So I know that I'm already operating at a deficit. My body's more prone to these traumas, stress hormones than maybe the average person who hasn't had the life experience or the genetic makeup that I do. So I need a little bit more maintenance. I'm like a Ferrari. I'm high maintenance, high performance, and that's okay. (laughs) So here's how you maintain. Here's how you introduce them into your life. So the first one is dopamine. Now, dopamine is like the woohoo chemical. It's the reward chemical and it feels really good, but it's kind of short lasting. Um, You can get dopamine from good stuff and you can get it from bad stuff, from healthy things and unhealthy things. So anytime uh, you're engaging in something that is highly addictive, where you're getting that like little jolt of woohoo. Like video games? Like video games, dopamine is involved, right? Uh, So you want to choose your dopamine wisely, um, but you can get dopamine just from little things like chocolate, right? Use in moderation, but chocolate will give you dopamine. Um, really just anything that's novelty, anything that's new. So changing it up, changing your environment, changing your routine, um, even just like walking different route home is going to give dopamine to your brain. Anytime you introduce a little change, you're introducing dopamine, so that's, uh, that's one of the, the neurochemicals that we want to introduce. The next one is oxytocin. That's the love hormone, the cuddle hormone. Um, you get that from cuddling a pet or cuddling your partner from sex, um, solo or with somebody. So that is really, really good for your heart. It's really, really good for your immunity. And it helps to regulate your nervous system because it helps you stay in connection with other people. So getting, getting your oxytocin 
especially in the land of pandemic, right? We all went inside. And for me, I was, I was alone in a New York city apartment for six weeks. So I had no oxytocin happening because of that lack of human connection. And I knew I was not okay. So I had to get out um, because I wasn't, I wasn't okay. I, just, I, I was crying uncontrollably and, and went and saw my mother and hugged her dog and her, and I felt a lot better immediately. So get your cuddles in folks. They're really good for your health. <laughs> I just want to jump in right there. Cause I just went home for homecoming and uh, cause I played football at ball state and I, I'm thinking back on, you know, my, my buddy and his family and kids and you know, I'm playing with the dog and I was just like, wow, this is really soothing playing with the playing with a dog and we don't have any dogs. And then, um, you know, he has an eight year old Maya and, you know, she's all about the hugs. And, and then I was thinking about like my ex, my former roommates or not former roommates, but former uh, teammates and hugging them and how like as men, you know, we, that hug lasts like 0.5 seconds and is not really enough to get the dose of oxytocin you know, the thing that we really need as men, but as people in general, like you said, you're in your apartment for six months to get that oxytocin, that feel good drug, that drug that allows us uh, to feel connected. So a lot of us who feel disconnected, it's, you know, the pets, your partners, uh, a friend, get that, I don't know, maybe a weighted blanket. Do you, re is, will we get that benefit kind of from a weighted blanket if we, if we are out there in the wilderness alone? You wouldn't get it from a weighted blanket, but weighted blanket does help to regulate the nervous system. Um, it, it increases serotonin actually, but not oxytocin. But here's the cool thing. Even if you touch yourself, it will create delta waves inside of the brain. So it'll slow your brain waves down and increase oxytocin. Hugs touch pressure on the upper body, head, and hands, right? Those warm hands on your own body. You can give yourself those self-cuddles. But if you have a friend and you both feel safe and vaccinated, you can have a movie night and just cuddle up, right? Like put on a movie, get some popcorn, get under a blanket and like snuggle up because you're, you're going to feel so much better. And it's really, really good for your health. Uh, you know, I love that because I realized that part of the messaging I received was touching yourself was inappropriate in any way. Mm -hmm. And as I'm getting older, I'm, I'm recognizing the value in like, you know, like you said, touching my hands or my arms or my forehead and just becoming more comfortable with soothing myself uh, in that way. And that it's not all, um, you know, having an undertone of, uh, of sex or, um, uh, you know, some type of inappropriateness. And I think a lot of people have been shamed out mm -hmm. of soothing themselves from touching themselves in a, in a, in a very healthy way. Yeah. I love that. And you can, you can even do a little time travel with yourself. Like if you want to imagine yourself in a younger age at a time when you really needed a hug, you can go back there and you can give yourself that hug that you needed. And oftentimes that can rewire that memory and give yourself a resource that you didn't have at the time. It can be powerful. Yeah. I had a buddy on a football team. We had a stuffed animal 
And I, I don't think he still has it, but uh, but he but he was like, yeah, man, I need that. I need that stuffed animal. Uh, and, and I realized there, there may be, uh, and I could see like why kids walk around with a stuffed animal or the weighted blanket. It's uh, a way of comforting themselves. Yeah. But I don't want to cut you off from the dose. Uh, so the e, the S is in uh, so serotonin. S is serotonin and 90% of the serotonin in your body is made inside of your gut. So food has a big impact on how much serotonin is coursing through your body. And one of the things that I started to experiment with was elimination diet. Um, so I eliminated sugar, alcohol, uh, and animal based, uh, foods, and then started to, and gluten as well, and started to introduce things and just see, and started journaling my moods my moods from my foods, right? How did I feel that day? And is there a link, right? Do I find that I feel lower energy or I feel crankier if I eat this versus that? And you can start to experiment with the right diet that's going to help support you in your mood. Um, but serotonin is the, it's kind of like the relaxation hormone. It's you after a hot yoga class. <laughs> if you've ever done hot yoga, you just feel like oh, so complete. Um, but yoga does increase serotonin. Anytime you get a good sweat on, that's going to increase serotonin, sunlight, right? Sunlight, sweating, um, that's going to help support your body uh, for, for creating more of that feel-good hormone. And what's interesting is serotonin between other people is known as the trust and confidence hormone. So the more serotonin that you have in your body, the more you're able to connect with other people and create trust responses in the relationships that you have, whether they're uh, personal relationships or professional ones. You want other people to trust you. You want them to do business with you. You need more serotonin in your body to create that experience with them because they're going to mirror the neurons that are happening in you. So the more relaxed you are, the more relaxed they're going to be, the more confident you are, the more confident they're going to feel in you. And so that confidence hormone, that serotonin, you can also get from music. <laughs> so when you're listening to the tunes that make you feel like a badass, the ones that put that swagger in your step, that's creating serotonin in your brain. Uh, so that's why like going for a walk with somebody, especially during lunch, because you're, you're kind of getting your, your body temperature up. You're out in the sunlight. I mean, depending on time of the year and where you are in the world. But, um, but and then you're also talking and, and, and expressing versus, you know, I, I used to substitute um, for a school district. And, you know, when you go to lunch in the teacher's cafeteria under that harsh fake light and no windows, and then you have this, salad that's going to help you lose 10 pounds allegedly um the, the energy in the room is is never as nourishing as you know going outside going for a walk um and 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 really uh connecting in that kind of way absolutely the the last hormone to look at in our dose is endorphins 
So this is, this is your, I'm powerless. This is like you as like Rocky on the top of those steps, you know, doing the, doing the yes, I can. Um, that, that endorphins, that's the alive hormone. So when you got endorphins, it actually happens after you do boxing, uh, which is one of my favorite ways to, to stay fit. I love to box. I think any woman should box. Um, it just gives you so much more power in the way that you stand and hold your body. Um, and it gives you that, that endorphin rush. Anytime you do intense cardio, you're going to get that endorphin rush for sure. Earlier, you talked about how your mom and, and your sister were two people that kept you grounded here on earth, um, and, and helped you to, to, to zoom out a bit and, and think about what you want your life to be about and, and living for them. Uh, what was your relationship with your father? You know, the relationship I had with my father was really complicated. Um, I am who I am because of him and, and in spite of, despite him, he, the, the defining moment of my life was really our last conversation before he passed away. And uh, my father died of cancer at the age of 63. And I went to say goodbye to him. And he was in the hospital bed. And I reached down and I found his hand and I held it. And he was full of regrets for his life and for his relationship with me. And he apologized and he said, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I wasn't more. And, um, you know, when I, when I saw him in that moment, I really saw him as a child before the world shaped him. My father was a victim of abuse. His, his father was a victim of abuse. And um, his nervous system was not capable of expressing the pure love that his soul really felt for me is what I come to believe after his passing. And in that moment, when we said goodbye to each other and we held each other for the last time, any pain or anger that I had held for him was completely gone. And I, I believe that his hug healed me, healed me of uh, any pain that he had caused. And in his passing, I feel him free from his body, right? Whether whatever we each believe happens after um, after our bodies have stopped functioning, um, I I personally believe that my father is free from the confines of his limited body, of his limited human experience, and now he is free to love me fully and unconditionally the way that his soul really intended to. And I feel his presence in my life. I feel his helpfulness in my path. And I'm so grateful that I am his daughter because I get to carry on the legacy that he wasn't able to, to achieve in his limited life. You know, it seems like a, a huge part of being able to forgive someone is one, if you know, you get that opportunity where you can feel and sense that they truly did the best with what they were left with, right? Generate, generation, uh, 
generationally and also chemically, um, genetically, and and then you know for them to feel it seemed like you, you like you said you sensed the regret um, that he had for how uh, uh, your experiences with him, um, and two because you're we're aware of the context of the behavior of the person who's before us, it allows us to have a bit more compassion that, the, you know, who we are. And because when we have compassion for other people, it allows us to have compassion for ourselves. You know, mm-hmm. at, at the beginning of this, you talked about how um, your genetics factored into your mental health and uh, your childhood experiences. And that allows you to say, okay, this isn't just me. This is, uh, I am a part, I'm a, I am my history. Mm-hmm. And, and so what am I going to do with that? How am I, you know, how am I going to transform this? And, and, and you did that also with, you know, going from, I want to be a dentist to, oh, I want to coach. You, you looked for opportunities uh, from your obstacles. Um, can you talk more about that? I love that you mentioned compassion because I believe in forgiving my father, I became more compassionate with myself and my own journey and my own obstacles. Um, I, I There's this amazing quote by author Isabel Wilkerson that really changed the way I see compassion. And she says that radical empathy is not, um, what would I do if I were in your shoes? Radical empathy is what do you do based on the experiences that you have endured? Who are you and, and how do you make your choices based on the life that you have lived? And you know we're all living different lives with different experiences, and that's what compassion is. And then we have the courage to make choices once we've had the compassion. And I think that when you can combine compassion with choice, that's when transformation becomes possible. I love that. And speaking of, uh, I'm sorry, it looks like you're going to say something else. Well, I, I wanted I wanted to share that you know, this is, this is a moment in my life that, that is a gift from my father's passing. He had so many regrets and I don't want to have any. And when I realized that life is so short after his passing, I recognized that I really had unfinished business as an artist I had given up that dream. I had, I had left that part of me behind. And I think that that's really what trauma is. It's when we give up a piece of ourselves in order to survive. But that healing is what happens when we go back and we reclaim those pieces of ourselves. And so to honor my father, I wrote him a song to say thank you and to say, I love you, and to say, I forgive you, and to say goodbye. And when I open the door to my creativity in the process of going through grief and using music as a way to heal, because that was the language that we always had to understand each other. My father was a drummer, and I was a singer. That unlocking the door to myself, to my creativity, to the artist within me, a 
decade of songs came pouring out of me and I haven't stopped songwriting since. And so this moment of reinvention is really about reclaiming that artist in me. And that's, that's why I moved to Los Angeles to, to go back to singing and go back to acting. I love that you're, you're reclaiming the pieces of you uh, mm-hmm. that you lost to trauma. It's so beautiful because I, I know, especially for myself, that I've found myself reacting to my childhood trauma. And now I'm in a place where I'm now responding and, and using that as fuel to uh, move forward and, and move on. So I really appreciate you sharing that. Please tell me more about your music. What kind of music are we talking here? We we doing some hip hop? We're doing. I mean, I haven't tried hip hop yet, but why not? I I love. I'm I'm one of those people that has the most eclectic playlist in the whole world. Like, if anybody rides in my car, they're like, "What? This is the next song." I'm like, "Yes, this is the next song." Um, I, so I am probably what one would call a singer songwriter. Um, I, I love James Taylor. I love Joni Mitchell. I love, uh, Fleetwood Mac. I love lyrics that tell stories and I'm, I'm just a natural born storyteller in the way that I write songs. Um, but I also have a partner who is an electronic musician. And so it's been really fun to collaborate with him. Um, and he and I met actually in the process of creating my dad's song. That's how we met. He was the producer and the engineer who helped to make that song possible. And so when I when I collaborate on his, I'm doing like hooks and like really cool vocal things with his electronic music. So that's been really fun too. I'm I'm still in a place of defining who I am as an artist and trying and experimenting different things, experimenting with different sounds. Um, so I, I guess once my new album comes out, you'll get to see firsthand what came out of the uh, the workshop. <laughs> Uh, I'm looking forward to that. And earlier you mentioned a book that you've read. Are there any other books that you've read uh, that have aided you on your mental health journey? You know, the first book that I read that really created awareness for me of the power of my own brain and my ability to heal myself and to change myself from the inside out was a book called What to Say When You Talk to Yourself. What to Say When You Talk to Yourself by Shad Helmstetter. And at, at the time, I had a lot of negative internal talk, right? Like the voice inside of my head was not compassionate and nurturing. It was like, you know, really demeaning and belittling. And that's how I motivated myself to be successful was by just beating myself up. And so when I read this book, I was like, yeah, right. Like, this is bogus. This doesn't work. <laughs> That's the, the traditional New Yorker is super skeptical. But I was like, you know what? I'm willing to try anything. I'm, I'm still the experimentalist that you've come to know me as in this short time. So I was like, I'll try it. At the time, I was not a morning person. Like getting out of bed was just a struggle for me every single day. And in the book, he says, well, the first thing when you wake up is don't say, 
I'm so tired, which was always what I would say when I would wake up. I would say, I'm so tired. I'm so tired. He says, the first thing you should say when you wake up is I have all the energy to do exactly what I need to do right now. And I'm so excited to start the day. Like something that is just going to ramp you up. So I was like, all right, I'm willing to try it. So for a week, I committed to every single day that my alarm would would go off, I would jump out of bed and go, I'm up and I have all the energy I need to face the day. I'm sure my neighbors did not appreciate me shouting this at six o'clock in the morning. (laughs) I mean, wouldn't you know it? A week goes by and suddenly when the alarm goes off, I'm alert when I wake up. And I was like, well, there's really something to this. And that's when I started to read more about what's, what is my brain doing? Why, why do I struggle with this? What is trauma? What is anxiety? What is depression? And I got so fascinated with the brain and it really led me down this, this rabbit hole of discovery. I was reading a book called Awaken the Giant Within by Tony Robbins. And that's how I learned about neurolinguistic programming, which is the power of language and imagery to create certain responses, positive or negative in your mind. And that if you can change the language and the imagery that's happening inside of your brain, you can change the neurochemical response to the language and the image that's going on inside of your brain, because that's how we change our results is by first thinking different thoughts. You know, I've heard that book come up so many times, Awaken the Giant Within. Uh, and one of my good friends is reading that now, or probably rereading it. So I'm definitely going to pick that up. And you know what? And I realized the power of what you were saying earlier of like, when I wake up, I'm going to, you know, have all this energy and I'm excited to start the day. And it's not about, at least for me, because I practice this also, it's not so much about lying to ourselves or deceiving ourselves or trying to trick ourselves into waking up with energy, but it's about breaking our typical pattern uh, of noise in our brain of, I don't want to wake up another day because after a while, waking up with energy and vitality and being excited, that starts to become a habit. It becomes part of our pattern. So a lot of our thinking is just habit. It's not necessarily really how we feel or how we think. It's just a habit that we've built up. And so this is about breaking uh, the habit. Uh, is that, am I saying that correctly, holly Yeah. Anytime you interrupt a pattern, you take your power back, right? And so anytime I recognize that something's got a hold on me, right? And I'm not choosing it anymore. That's when I go, okay, I need to take my power back because I could go back to that habit and decide, I actually really like that. Um, I think it serves me well. Um, but, but being intentional because when you can take your power back, there's a lot of responsibility in that too. Cause then you have to, then you, then you're the one driving the car. You're the one setting the destination. Um, but the habits that you have, they got you here. They've kept you safe. They've kept you alive. They've gotten you here. So they're not necessarily bad, but at some point they become no longer useful to who you want to become. So you can thank them for being here for as long as, as long as they've been here and then giving, taking your power back and finding a way to interrupt that habit and create a new neural pathway, a new way of being. And that will create a different result for you. Um, 
you know, I, I love to say that every behavior has a positive intention, no matter what the consequence it has in your life. Every behavior wants something good for you. It wants you to be safe. It wants you to be loved. It wants you to grow. Um, you know, finding out what, what is this old habit really want for me? And how can I find a different way to get that need met? And that's what compassion is when you're looking at changing your habits. I love that. Thank you, Holly. And, and last two questions. What are you looking forward to? I'm looking forward to everything that's happening right in this moment. <laughs> ah. um, this uh, this conversation has been really such a great reminder for me of how far I've come. So thank you for for asking me about my journey. And um, I I went to <laughs> I went to my first audition in 12 years a couple of weeks ago, and I am excited to report that I booked the lead in a new musical here in Los Angeles. So I am, I am stepping, I'm reclaiming the artist and it feels really, really great to come home to myself. So powerful. How can people come home to you? I, I, I was trying to be clever with the words, but, uh, <laughs> but <laughs> because you are a coach, how can people reach out to you? They can find me at hollyannmitchell.com. Holly with a Y and with an E, Mitchell with two L's.com or on Instagram. It's my name, Holly Ann with an underscore Mitchell, Holly Ann underscore Mitchell. And the last question, I always imagine there's one person listening who maybe on the precipice of wanting to end their life before you kill yourself, what would you say to them, Holly Ann Mitchell? The first thing I would do is talk to that part of yourself that wants to kill yourself and listen, listen with so much love. And whether that's talking inside of your own head or journaling right? Play your own best friend in that moment. Listen to all of the pain. Listen to all of anything that is, is telling you um, that you don't belong here. Just listen, listen with love. And once you've listened, offer some other alternative paths, whatever they might be, right? They could be, they could seem outrageous to you, offering alternative paths. And then as your friend in your head has offered you alternative paths, fast forward to the future, down that path and see your life then. What's different? Who's around you? Who's been impacted positively because you are still here? And from that place, Talk to yourself in this moment right now from future you and listen to whatever you need to hear from future you today. Thank you so much, Holly Ann Mitchell. Thank you so much to listeners for tuning in. Remember, this podcast is not a substitute for you going to get help for you calling the 1-800-SUICIDE or 1-800-273-TALKS or if you're in Budapest or Hungary or 
uh, Maui, wherever you are in the world, there are international phone numbers listed in each and every single one of the show notes. You can go to hollymitchell.com to reach out and, and connect more with her. Uh, you can also go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching with yours truly. Let's get to tomorrow together. Thank you so much, Holly Ann Mitchell. Thank you, Leo. Thank you for creating this space.